Welcome back. It's The Mix with who? Matt and Dan. <laughs> the Mix with Matt and Dan. It's hard not to say that like a DJ, which is fine. Uh, we call this The Mix because it's about the marketing mix. Uh, and it's also a mix of comedy and life and ideas. Uh, we're just trying to be interesting. Give people some value for listening. Isn't that right, Matt? That's all we try and do. Deliver overwhelming value. <laughs> that is one of our, our key phrases, overwhelming value. So this Matt Bruchet over there on... Mike number one. That's right. Mike number two would be Dr. Dan French. Dr. Dan. It's got to feel good every day nailing down the doctor as part of your name. My kids don't even believe it. Like, my kids were literally going, uh, they were talking about doctors. I'm like, well, you know, I'm a doctor. And they're like, no, you're not. Mm. Not really. Eh. That doesn't really work. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Good enough, though. We are back. Um, This podcast, as I said, is about the marketing mix. We have a marketing company. 500rockets.io, check it out. We do amazing work. Of course, we're marketers. Of course, we're going to say we do amazing work. We have a lot of promise in those, in those offers. <laughs> uh, that's the beautiful thing about marketing. You know, it's, it's all claim. It's a beautiful world. That's right. right? That's right. Like that's marketers th- believe in the beautiful world. Yeah, marketers really like new relationships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, new relationships have good positive energy until, you know, the evidence starts to build that maybe this is a mixy relationship. Yeah, maybe there's a little give and take in it. And then at the end, it's a horrible relationship, and the whole plane goes down in flames. Yeah, it's hard to find good marketing. Uh, you know, marketing is really about relationships, right? I think it's, uh, I'll put it as it's hard to find good clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. We have some of the world's best clients. But, we do. We have great clients. You know, some people who ebb and flow from our business, you it, know. It's it, the nature of this stuff. It's the nature, and the truth is, is that we actually, this is actually a good thing to talk about in a way. Like, we actually have a pretty strong hire or fire policy, right? Like, it's part of, our, it's part of my sales pitch when I talk right. to people. You expect the ebb and flow of what you know, yeah, marketing and I actually, is. Yeah, I want people to fire us if it's not a good fit because your marketing dollars are the hardest ones to spend. Yeah, right. Doubt. Like, there's two types of businesses. There's, market, there's businesses that are before their marketing, and there's businesses when marketing really starts. And you're really not a grown-up business until you're putting about 20 or 30% into your marketing. Yeah. That's yeah. a hard spend. We've it talked about hard. this because it's that's hope money. Yeah. That's not like I'm putting this money out. I know I'm going to get this much product back from my manufacturer. This is hope money. Like I'm going to create these messages and hope they, you know, increase sales, hope they create energy. But it's hope. It's, it's hard, hard to spend hope money. It's hard to spend hope money. And it's hard to figure out whether or not is marketing an investment? Is marketing making my company bigger? Is it not making it bigger? How do you manage? You know, how do you measure this? All of these things around marketing make it kind of an ass whooping for people, especially as they're maturing in their own business acumen. Yes, two phrases you will hear on the mix are ass whooping and overwhelming value. <laughs> there are yeah. lots of phrases we repeat over and over again. Yeah, those are core. Uh, those are core words here in the uh, Shed Zeppelin. So here's what I wanted to talk about. The episode this week is, is going to be titled Naming. This is one of the things that we do. It's because I bring creative background to this. I was a Hollywood comedy writer and producer. I've worked in stand-up for 30 years. I really like creative work. And one of the things that I find del- delivers over- overwhelming value to companies is if they have like a super optimized name. And one of the things that drags companies down you know consistently it may not kill a company but it's going to harm your sales it's going to handicap your sales force it's going to handicap 
everybody who's trying to talk about, you know, the company that they work for is if you have a bad name, you know, (laughs) and I've talked to a lot of people about this. Like it's, it's painful to go, well, we do have a bad name. We're going to have to give up that brand equity and restart. What you'd rather do is start with a really good name, like a really strong primary symbol. And we just wrapped up a project this month, uh, this week for, it's about a six week project that we do for naming and we just renamed a company. And it was a positive experience, right, Matt? I, I, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, and it's always the same, right? For people like myself, uh, it's, you know, it's just certain type of torture, right? Because it's creative for creative sake. You really have to have kind of like, oh, look at the butterfly. Let's run around the field chasing this I hate butterfly. I people talk about creative like this. <laughs> Matt's, if you haven't followed the po- podcast, Matt's a hardcore sales guy, tech guy. He does distribution. He's a distribution numbers hardcore marketer. And that idea of like get it out there, get impressions, get data, come back to it, and then you have some information is awesome. And that's one of the reasons we partner up. I'm on the other side, but I'm just as hardcore about creative. There's no chasing the butterfly. Like I am very process driven about my butterfly creation. Yeah, that's true. It's like you don't. You've like, taken you've taken chasing the butterfly <laughs> down to a scientific medium, but still from the outside, you oh, I know, totally get it. Arms crossed, sitting in the car, looking at your family, not having a good time because you're a 14 year old kid, type of emotion coming out. It looks as if they're frolicking in the field chasing butterflies. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. That's why I wanted to make this episode since we just did refresh off of a naming pro- process. Uh, I want to talk about it a little bit. So what does that mean? Because I think businesses don't really understand what it means to have a creative process, like a very manufacturing line, step-by-step manu- uh, process for creative. Right. And coming from Hollywood, everything has a process. It's very, you know, manufacturing Ford auto delivery, you know, step-by-step-by-step-by-step. Yeah, I mean, it's the NFL or the, you know, Major League Baseball of creative. Yeah, and nobody there is ever chasing butterflies. Yeah, What they're doing is, like, you may put them in a little cage and say, hey, you know, throw a bunch of butterflies around, pick the five that actually function, and then instantly chloroform those so we can move them to the next stage. Yeah, so something I've heard you mention before, and maybe you can expand on it, is that I found it interesting that creative has patterns, Right, and that there's different things you can do in the creative process to run through in order to manufacture creative output. Yeah, so let's talk about these some in the context of naming, for example. So one of the problems with naming is that it's a very, very tiny symbol uh, set, often one word or half a word or a new word. Sometimes it's two, but it's usually try to get down to one word. But it's got to do so much. Right, the the information load and the persuasion load on a name is in, incredible, and to be able to believe you can boil that down and still have all that multifunctionality in one word, that is an incredibly challenging communication construction process. So, like, what are the, some of the things? So, what I do is start with, what does the name have to do for you? And I tell clients when they come in. The best scenario is that symbol, that message is going out there and doing pre-sales for you. It's pre-warming your clients so that when they get into contact with either your static messaging, your website and all that, or your dynamic messaging from your sales staff, 
they're already pre-warmed. They pre-like the idea of your company or your product or working with you. So, like, that idea of pre-warming, that's a lot of work for a little symbol to do. Yeah, it's been interesting to see that process play out because when people choose a name, sometimes they... There's a couple concepts in persuasion that I think come into naming, and I don't know if it's a good time to, like, bring them up, but I think it would be foreign to people to understand that when you try and say something positive, you are injecting something negative with it. And well, it's it, one of the, yeah, it's one of the laws of persuasion thermodynamics, as I call it. For every time you say something positive, everybody else is also going to think the negatives. Well, give me an example. So any claim you make, like, hey, uh, you should eat vegan, okay? Like, I eat vegan, it's really healthy, you should also eat vegan. I feel great, everything's amazing. Right. I'm All vegan, 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 vegan. Upside claim, like okay. the positive part of the claim. So you tell me instantly, what are your downsides? And I say, you should eat vegan, Matt. Sounds painful. Sounds like a lot of work, right? Yeah, sounds like a lot of work. You're going to have to eliminate a lot of great foods. Yeah, that's right. You're going to have to hang out with vegans. I I like, I'm actually, (laughs) well, I consider myself uh, a temporary, you know, a a vegan out of style right now. So uh, I actually like to eat vegan, so that's not a good example for me. Well, but you still understand, like, um, you can't even follow veganism. No, I can't. It's, right? too, it's too painful. It's too much work. It's yeah, it's too, too it's, much. Yeah, it's too much. The main thing I want, I don't want to do is I don't want to talk about it, right? <laughs> so like the main reason I'm not right. vegan is because I couldn't handle going out to business lunches all the time and talking about veganism. I don't... I totally not, understand it. Yeah. It's, in all alternative health, uh, that's what happens. It becomes a moralistic thing where you, you have to proselytize to try to convert people. It's like every religion. Once you think you found the answer, you you know you want to share that answer. Yeah, and it becomes a really dominant urge. Yeah, and it's you know there's certain things that get down to people's core. I think maybe the the moralism is a good way of a uh, kind of triggering that you know kind of thing. But for people, it just it becomes a big deal. Well, and food is yeah you know, a very intense one. But so let's take this back to naming. So like vegan is a name. Yeah, that word does not exist. Like, it's not in the lexicon. It, it wasn't around in the Oxford English Dictionary. It was just created by someone, right? Yeah. Who created the word vegan? Where yeah. did it come from? I don't know. But I, I, all I'm thinking about is the pain. Let me tell you about the pain of the word vegan. I got into a conversation, real conversation, about the word vegan. And then they started talking about the other 94 options of your types of veganism. Right. Right? Like... Uh, the one where you eat fish, but you don't, did you know that one? What is that? Yeah, pescatarian. Pescatarian, veganism, vegetarian, da-da-da. Like, there's, like, all of these different names, and we've, like, segmented this, and, like, who? I don't because, want to talk about it. It goes back to the same thing, though. Like, the word itself, vegan, great word. Yeah. It's been a dominant, very successful word. It's five letters. Easy to say, easy to remember. It's powerful. I bet you right now, 60%, 70% of America does not understand what a vegan is. I think that's true. And so the word itself, while it's got resonance, it's got some memorability, it's a strong word, it's losing information load. And that's what you're talking about when they start to break it apart into its Mm sub-naming, like, you know, egg vegans, you know, I can't remember the name for that, but it's funny. Uh, pescatarian, you know, all those things, you're no longer a vegan when you're adding in those adjectives. Yeah, that's right. I say vegan 
because it's the only way I can explain to people that I don't do dairy, right? Because, and, and then you say you don't do dairy, and they're like, oh, do you have, um, uh, what Lactose is Lactose intolerance. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't. I really don't. I, you know, like, because then, you know, there's a whole thing around that. And I, I just, you know, it's the so only way to All sorts like, of naming uh, challenges. Let me ask you a question about this, though. You said information load around a word. Does capitalism attack, infer- like, are words always under attack because of capitalism? Like, if you get into a society that has maybe more socialism or something has a different area where there's not this complete ownership of, like, just taking over words, because even in our naming model, we're overtaking words and applying just so that we can get that information load into our name so that we can benefit from it, even though it probably has nothing to do with what that word really means. Yeah, I mean, uh, capitalism is a good place to look when you start to... So my background, as a, uh, also from being an entertainment person, is my PhD is in rhetoric, which is the study of things like language and use, language and action. So one of the things you see with a capitalist culture, capitalism has this sub-concept called appropriation. Right. And it's incredibly powerful. Capitalism, one of the geniuses of capitalism, is it can appropriate anything. It can take something that's developed totally somewhere else in a totally another culture across the world, and it can absorb it and use it. It can take it for its own purposes. Nike just did this this week with Colin Kaepernick. Right. He's in the NFL. He's doing racism, you know, uh, social justice. Nothing to do with Nike. Right. They totally took him. It was like, oh, this guy's got some emotional and cultural capital charge on him. It's going to get a, a ton of media coverage, and they just bought him. Right. They appropriated everything that was Colin Kaepernick for the for their their shoes. You know, for right. their, their brand. Right. And so and some people are burning the shoes, but probably more people are buying the shoes. It doesn't really matter. What it does is it gets you into the media. It gets you free millions and millions of dollars of free media coverage, right. which means Nike is once again you know, a brand that people are talking about for a little while. It doesn't matter whether it's conflict or it's negative uh, social issues right now. Trump has proven this millions of times. It doesn't matter if you're getting negative coverage. As long as you're getting coverage, your brand is primary in everybody's mind. So yeah, ca- uh, capitalism will appropriate any term, any symbol. Like look what it's done to gluten. Yeah. Like gluten is kind of a sub vegan term. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things uh, that you see within the alternative health community and it's become a primary symbol. Vegan, gluten, paleo, there are maybe, you know, a handful of 10, 20 terms that have been risen up that everybody has heard a lot. Right. Nobody knows what gluten is. They no. literally cannot define it. If you ask them, well, what is gluten? I don't know. It's something in bread. <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah. Do you know what gluten is? Uh, I know that uh, wheat was has five building blocks or something like that, and three of them are starch and two are gluten. So I would imagine it's a building block to something. Yeah, that's that's completely uh, useless, non-technical. Yeah, no, it was like right? just using words to suck yeah. up life. I you, sucked up your life with those words. You have no idea. So yeah. capitalism took that term and now it's on everything. Because it became a very positive God term. Yeah, gluten and they, free. you know, they did some testing and they put gluten-free on packs of meat and they sold more meat. Sure. Right, because nobody has any clue at all. Because just for the record, there is no gluten inside a steak. <laughs> well, depends on, yeah, that's typically true. But, so, 
you have God terms and devil terms. You have positive terms and negative terms. And when you get a super term like gluten, that's a negative term, then you say, we don't have that, then you gain some uh, God terms. You gain some holiness to your product. Mm. And so anything like that becomes really strong. And when you start looking at names, your name cannot carry any negative load at all. For your product or your company, a completely no negative load name is absolutely required. So when we come back, we're going to talk about how do you develop a name without negative load. And I think that this is probably the single biggest mistake business people make, is that they come up with a name and then they don't really consider the negative load for whatever reason. Um, Understanding the physics of uh, persuasion, knowing that negative and positives come together. Yes, we will be back, and we'll also get Matt's minute where uh, Matt's going to rant about his topic for the week. back segment two of the mix with matt and dan we're talking about naming uh, as a an exact process what do you take that through all the things that have to be laid into a, a good name process we just finished with the idea of negative load that any name can carry negative load and you got to make sure that your name doesn't and it's sometimes hard like a name can suddenly shift think of all the people in this uh, world uh, who woke up one day named jeffrey dahmer <laughs> yeah right yeah just ruined it your name's completely changed forever and there's yeah. no way to ever avoid that negative yeah, every load. time you go to even the dry cleaners they're like jeffrey dahmer huh look what happened to subway sandwiches subway had you know jared as a spokes guy for 15 years 20 years it was a long time he was yeah. incredibly successful and valuable to that company one day, suddenly, as soon as you say subway, you think pedophile. It's true. It'll be interesting. I mean, it seems to have... They don't seem to be trying to change it. They seem to be trying to get some distance between that experience and maybe their next campaign. Yeah, it's a question about, like, how much value share did that steal from that company? I oh, mean, he was literally the launch spokesperson for everything they came up with for 20 years. Yeah, Fascinating, though. I mean, you know, his net worth was what reported at 15 or $20 million. Yeah, that guy did not know how to negotiate. I would have walked in there and said, hey, guess what? Uh, unless you give me $200 million a year, I'm going to get fat again. <laughs> and tell everybody it's because I ate meatball subs <laughs> every day here. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that, that's, that's a bold negotiating technique but he went i remember reading about some of the marketing on this it went from somebody went from like the 20th ranked uh fast food chain in the country to number one and it was all riding on the back of jared right i mean but that's that's the problem with a name when you make a really strong choice with a name you know lance armstrong 
same thing. You know, for years, that guy was a dominant positive symbol in sports. Even though there were doubts about him and, you know, there were questions, one day, bam, that became an incredibly negative brand. And every brand has the potential to turn negative. What you don't want to do at the very beginning is lay in negatives at the, at the very inception. And some of the ne- negative namings uh, that you'll find the negative load is like not being able to spell it. Interesting. Not being able to say it easily, mm-hmm. not being able to remember it, uh, having it uh, overlap with an already existing brand or symbol that's stronger than your brand, that's going to, like, everybody's immediately going to go to that. Mm-hmm. All these are things, then I've got a list that I'll put, I, I put in as a checklist for clients. I'm like, we have to check it for every single possible uh, negative load. And if you have any of that, then that name will not be chosen. Because your your company and your salespeople will be fighting that forever. Yeah, yeah. You know um, what I what I find to be interesting about the naming product that we deliver. When I say we, I mean you. And uh, when I say deliver, I mean I literally am the one who writes it on a sheet of paper and delivers it to the people. So you do all the work, and I get to you know be the face of some of this stuff. Is that for me? I am very linear, like, you know, computers and, you know, if-then statements and just kind of getting to the point. But when you get around kind of your creative process, it's almost like a carousel, right? And I don't mean carousel, but I mean you circle around it and then you kind of start kind of getting closer and closer to it. Is that a personal thing or is that part of a creative model or methodology? No, creative always works from the broad to the specific. Like this is, again, the Hollywood model that you know where you want to get to. Say you have a sitcom and you have to write a new episode for the sitcom. And you always start with the general. Like everybody knows what the goal is. It's 22 minutes of script that typically has an opener, a closer, uh, two acts, maybe three acts in between it. And everybody knows the structure before you even start. You just don't know what you're going to fill it in with. So you'll start with people pitching ideas. And these are people that have already worked on this, so they're not going to be too far off in their general pitches. Like, they'll be viable ideas. They just may not be good enough, or within the flow of what's been done before, they may not be good enough to beat what the previous stories have been. And so it's always broad down into specific. So you'll have, you know, 8, 10, 12 people in the room who all have great training, who are really talented, who know exactly where you're going, and they'll start pitching ideas. Mm-hmm. And you may get 15, 20, 50, 100 ideas. And then you'll start sorting through them. And somebody will say something, and it'll trigger another idea. But it's all this broad creative. It's not brainstorming. I call it, like, you got to put all the tigers in a cage. You can't just have the tigers running around. You have to put them in a cage. Yeah, one of the most painful parts for me is brainstorming. Like, I hate brainstorming. You would love it if you were in a room with five people you found incredibly entertaining that you had some type of, uh, you're already synced up with. Yeah. And you're like, put your five best friends in a room. Yeah. Would you guys talk well? Yeah, we would. Whatever you throw out as a topic, it'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be funny. Yeah, and fun to talk about. Yeah, and that's what you want in your creative environments. Yeah, but that's not business. Well, the problem with business is business wants to do creative process without creatives and I tell people this at the very beginning of this every time I'm like 
there are people I do not want involved in this creative process, like executives. Mm-hmm. Executives are often incredibly smart people, and they may be creative. They are not professional creatives. Right. And they kill the process because creatives only talk well with other creatives. Right. You've got a lingo. Everybody understands where it's going. They know what's out of bounds and what isn't. They don't murder. Like one of the problems that people do, almost nobody has been trained in the early stages of creativity and that they murder ideas or they uh, will wound an idea. That's actually the signal of a rookie creative, isn't it? That when an idea comes up that they don't like, they tend to kill it rather than kind of just putting it off to the side and letting it ferment? Well, I mean, there's a whole psychology of, of how to do, you know, group persu- group creativity. Like I had a guy, really great writer and a friend of mine um, on staff when I was at CBS and you would pitch things. And when I first started there, I listened to it a little bit. And then after about two weeks, I got to know him. And I stopped him. I'm like, no, you, you like what he would do is he would, uh, I used to call it mooing. He would moo your joke. He'd be like, ah, you know, or moan at it. And I'm like, nah, eh, you know, that kind of like, it's not a rim shot, but it was might as well be. And I'd be like, no, you do not get to make cow sounds about jokes you don't like because I don't enjoy hearing your moan to my joke. You cannot laugh at it or you can say, yeah, it's, you know, it's an idea, but let's, keep moving if, if there's silence that's fine for creatives but negative reactions no way it kills the fun right and so i would just constantly crush him whenever he would do that and i insulted him to the point where he stopped doing it sure well that's an effective way of building relationships well, you gotta and punish people influencing people yeah and but <laughs> making what is it influencing <laughs> friends and yeah it's very uh, hard in business though to keep executives out of things yeah, it is. It's hard in Hollywood, too, but it's, it's important. You know, not that they shouldn't be involved, but they need to be involved only in specific stages. And we, brought the, we bring executives in constantly when we're doing naming, but only after the creative work has been done enough to where it's been brought to a place where they can see options. Mm-hmm. They can evaluate those options, get some feedback, and we can move on from there. Mm-hmm. So executives are very good at, at giving, you know, response to narrow decisions and they can they can evaluate them they're smart people and they can they can add a lot to it but you can't involve them in the messy part like you call it right yeah well we you know we went nuts yeah we went through the i mean but it's funny how different ways that that manifests itself right like how many times have we gone through a process where you know you have a professional writer write it you have a professional designer design it and, you know, you have, like, three or four really smart people who know what they're doing, edit and put copy and, you know, just refine it. And then, you, you know, you show it to the executive and they're like, mm. <laughs> See? Uh, Cow yeah. sound. Yeah, eh. they, they, they moo at it, you know. And you're like, well, I don't think you really know what you're doing, you know. Well, and that's, that's – And they may be right, but, it, but it's at that point, it's like sometimes it's not even about being right as people are trying to convince me, right, that I don't need to be right all the time or uh, communicate that things are wrong. Um, but sometimes you got to let it go and trust the team and build rapport and let everybody fail together. Yeah, and I think, again, that becomes, it's more to me a process issue still. Like what you should do at that point is that executive should be able to look at five things, and they shouldn't be completely fleshed out. They should be still partial enough where they're like, here's, 
enough where you can clearly see what this is going to be. Pick, pick one and tell us what you like about it. We'll hone it on the second iteration to where it's, it's jiving up with them. They're not just getting a finalized or close to final product. That's not a good way to do creative with clients. Yeah, but on the flip side of that, just to speak on behalf of the executives, I think a lot of this is like workflow and the bureaucratic side of slowing things down to the point where things almost stop, <laughs> you know? Well, that's why I said it's a six-week process to do naming, yeah. and there's a reason why. I could do, we had a client meeting this week that went really well, but I told them, like, either we're doing high participation, high interaction with clients, and I can do it fast, or we're doing tiny, you know, sort of barely any interaction with the clients, and I, it's going to take forever. Like, if we could lock down for two hours a day for two weeks... I could do all their marketing design. Right. But that requires them to give me good, full, clean access for two hours, ten sessions. Mm-hmm. But I, you can almost never get that with people because they're too busy. Mm-hmm. But you still have to make progress on even creative things. So the process at that point becomes incredibly important that it's tied down and very tight. And everybody knows what it is. Yeah. So. It would be interesting to see if these creatives can live in business. You know, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder, I have a theory. You know what my theory is? What's your theory, Matt? My theory, Dan, is that as the robots come, right? As they... <laughs> the robots are going to do the creative? <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe the robots will get... People you know, try. There are programs that try to write jokes. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's the almost, you know, is it the equivalent of teaching an elephant to paint, though? You know, like, pretty I mean, much. is that... Yeah, pretty much. So... I think as the ass whooping, like I have a belief that life is really hard, right? And it's just painful. Like no matter where you are. Is in, this going to be Matt's minute? Let's do is the Matt's the, minute. Life I'll is, tell you what. We're going to take a break uh, from our second segment. We'll come back and open up segment three with Matt's minute, which is Matt getting to vent. You got it. So we're back. We're with, back with the mix. <laughs> we're back. So let me just talk to you guys a minute about how hard life is. And I think it's actually hard. It becomes harder based on your economic situation, right? But it's hard. It's hard to have all of these things in life that you think you're supposed to have and to be content with it. And if you just are not tuning out at the end of the day with massive amounts of alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, it becomes an ass whooping to get things done in your life. So not only are you constantly making a mess in your house, just by existing, you constantly have like, we always say 
this positive and negative, but we don't actually talk about just going through your daily routine literally destroys your living environment, right? And so you either have to go make enough money to pay somebody to clean up after you, or you, you have, have to, to live in filth. You have to live in filth. <laughs> or every two weeks or every week, you have to spend your precious time cleaning up all the filth that you created when you were doing the thing that you had to do to live and feed yourself. Is this your reaction to uh, seeing your uh, maid come and clean today? Like, well, where did this one come from? I, you know, this is just like, it's just perpetual. Like, you got two kids. I got a two dog, kids, a, a dog. The dog sits at my feet, doesn't even do anything. It's almost questioning why is the dog alive? Why does the dog exist if it only sits at my feet all the time? To, to put hair into your environment. <laughs> Exactly. So now I got a dog, and then, you know, you go through... Or like the day we came into the shed, right? And she had crapped all over the shed. Yeah, that was... left her here overnight. That was brutal. (laughs) Because she was asleep, and I went to go... Yeah, so then she had an accident. The dog's fine. It was not an accident. She did that on purpose. She was mad that I left her in the shed uh, overnight. And see, that's her way of getting back, is she knows... That making a mess is an ass whooping. Dogs are tuned in to what can bring you joy and what can bring you pain. Sore kids. Kids are the same. Sore wives. Kids are more permanent though, right? Like if you get into the whole problem with kids, kids is like you yell at them once and then they're replaying that back for the next 10 years. Remember that time that you yelled at me for that thing that you were wrong about? Right. So like we talk about this sometimes as whipping posts, like which whipping posts? Am I being tied to at this point? And it's like with kids, like they're whipping you and you can't even set, you can't even shout out because then that's going to make it worse. Then they're going to be damaged. No, you got to go like, like stoic oh, right. on it. That's and you have fine. to act like, yeah. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. And like the only reprieve, like what is that um, Louis C.K. joke, right? His vacation, like he was packing the car for his kids and going through it, you know, and putting everything for the vacation and his vacation was shutting his wife's door and then walking around the car to the driver's side door. <laughs> like that was the, 11 second vacation. Yeah, the 11 second walk around. Uh, most of life is moving from whipping post to whipping post. All right. There's Matt's minute whipping post to whipping post, which I think everybody would probably agree with. So let's go back to our current whipping post, which is naming, because we're trying to theme Well, hold on. Let me, I think I meant, like, it was on a thread that I didn't get to. My prediction for the future, which I think should be another segment, is the future, sec, you know, the future, the, what is the future going to bring? Like, the robots that are walking around doing the ass-whooping things that we need them to do for us are going to create a new era of creativity for new people. I think it's going, my prediction is not a utopian world, but certainly a world where you have the option to be creative in ways that you don't have time or space to do now. Well, that was like when you look evolutionarily, right? And they talked about what changed um, for human beings was the ability to farm. And therefore, you could gather food in massive amounts. You didn't have to farm all the time. You didn't have to hunt all the time. So that freed up all this civilization time. That's when art essentially really started. I think we're going to get into a, the artistic, you know, it's going to be an artistic era. A second. A like, second, a, yeah, the artistic yeah. age, almost equivalent in size and scope to the information age. And I think it's going to be on the other side of the robot thing. It's a beautiful idea. The robots are going to create Picassos right and left. Well, we, yeah. I like it. I yeah. like it. It's a yeah. good, positive it's, 
I think for a guy who gets ass whooped all the time, that's a positive. I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to. Isn't that where we're like, like something in, innately in us is working this hard all the time? Like the day we walk in here and like there's a robot Matt and a robot Dan doing the work. And we're like, keep going, guys. <laughs> keep going. Encur- <laughs> encouraging them. We're going to go fishing. Yeah. You know, have fun. Why not? That sounds great to me. Sounds good. Do we need to do all this marketing? How, much, how many times do we need to poke the rats? Isn't at this point, isn't it science? Like I was telling somebody the other day, marketing is winning. Like when you look at society and you look at the effect of marketing, marketing is like 300 points on the board, human mind, two points, <laughs> right? The only points that the human mind is scoring right now is indifference. That is its only go-to winning strategy. What do you mean? Like Like, it's reaction to marketing? You have to disconnect from everything around you and completely take away that it has any value. Like Facebook, for example, went through and completely addicted your mind to caring about pictures and people in high school and this status, like racing of who, where they are in life and what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going out on my motorcycle and I'm going to take pictures of it. And now I've got this motorcycle identity or whatever the thing is that you profess as your social identity. It did. That's true. Yeah, I know. And it sucks. And it's only because marketing is winning. If you go to the beach. So are you claiming like, like they're so good at selling you product uh, experience after product experience that essentially the only way the human mind can defend itself is just by coming indifferent to the whole process or to individual products. Yeah, I mean, how many times are you going to get like these five most interesting pot? Hey, guys, you know what I'm going to tell you right now? I'm going to tell you the five most interesting things about marketing. <laughs> right? Right. It's making a... Well, and we, That's what we, we talk call about this a lot. Like understanding buyer psychology in modern America is... Everybody has indifference as, like you said, armor. Like you have to be able to, to completely devalue things almost instantly. Yeah. Like you never really believe they have value. Yeah. And ironically, like everybody wants to know the five most interesting things about marketing. And it's not because it's because that sentence has been structured in a way that just punches through your face into the jelly, the bowl of jelly in your head. Until you see it. 400 times and you're like I know that's a trigger for that's not a good article that's right and so the only way to do it is to and you can have two options one desensitize yourself by that time it doesn't matter because we've moved on now we've got the six most interesting things in marketing and then you're like ah what's that sixth one I didn't get the sixth one I only have five in my head what would possibly have advanced in that time and I've already gotten my click metrics and all those other things But another piece of evidence that marketing is kicking the ass of the average American is just go to the beach. Just go to the beach and look at the average size of a human relative to where they were 15, 20, 30 years ago. We are getting bigger. And we're getting bigger because we're consuming more stuff. And we're consuming more stuff because we want to. Right? Because we're getting sold all of this stuff to consume. Well, you asked earlier about capitalism, and you know, capitalism again will appropriate anything. And one thing it thinks it appropriated was public persuasion. Like advertising is literally just this weird modern uh, invasion of public discourse. Like if you look back at the history of public discourse in 
in human civilization. It was for art, you know. It was for politics. It was for information. You know, it was never sales. And suddenly now it's become like this, it's been invaded by capitalism where everything has become sales. And you can't get to the information because it's been perverted. You can't get to the art because entertainment, which is basically capitalism's monkey, you know, it's just there because it's, it's supported by, uh, by uh, money. So, all right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back for our final segment of The Mix. back of course we are the mix matt and dan and we have been talking about naming last segment we got off on how hard life is because matt has two young kids and a dog and a business and all sorts of stuff like that i also have two kids a little older you know i don't have a dog and that's the reason why they don't count your kids don't count they're totally they're like 16 and one's in college totally untrue Totally untrue. I still get calls almost daily from the college age one who's now telling me about the problems of college. And my question about that is like, I know so much about partying in college because I played rugby and I went to a party university for four years. Like, how much do I actually tell her? Like, how much? You know, at some point, even though you know what it's like to go on the ride... You just have to not tell people what it's like. It's true. You you don't want to give too. You don't want to be too an over talking guide. No, you don't. But I mean, I don't know. This came up last night. My daughter has been fighting for Snapchat because now she has been left out about all of the. Her social network is gone. It's just gone because everybody's on this new technology, Snapchat. Not new, but new for her and her friends. Sure. And they moved off of Facebook and right. Instagram and all these others. And she wanted to move over there. I don't really care. I'm actually pro-technology. Uh, you know, when I was on the internet, it had no walls, right? Like, I was on the internet before the internet on BBS systems dialing up on my Mac SE. So 
I know the joy of having no freedom. I think it makes gives you a passion for technology. Agreed. Whereas she wants to use kind of the Snapchat thing, and so I was giving her the lecture, right? Listen, you know, you they advertise and they put into your brain from a promise that you're that it's going to go away. But it doesn't go away if somebody's holding another device in front of that device. It doesn't go away if 94 people are standing around the phone looking at your post. You don't get a signal back that that trust has been broken, right? That it is being shared, that it is being saved. So this brings up something we talked about earlier about the positive. Uh, every time you mention the positive, it brings up the negative. Right. There's a certain thing about parenting, because I'm getting this a lot now. My son's 16, just had his first girlfriend. So everybody's like, you know, have you had the talk with him? You know, sex talk. And I'm like, what that actually means when they're saying it to me is, have you warned him about all the downsides of sex? <laughs> and I'm right. like, I don't want to start the guy's relationship with sex with that kind of messaging. It's, why do I have to do... So, like, the Snapchat thing, like, and Internet, you know, social media, people always are like, well, you got to warn your kids about all the stuff. I'm like, they figure that stuff out themselves very quickly. Yeah, they do. I think where, where I err on the side of offering that level of guiding, when all of a sudden people are like, hey, dude, it's an open field and it's the desert and you don't need to guide us anymore, just keep walking. Uh, not that that's a great metaphor for this, but I think that the, the problem or the risk is that it's just so high-def and accessible, right? It's really one website away, one click away from seeing a level of just detail that, quite honestly, I wasn't even privy to until <laughs> I was well into my 20s. That is true. That is true. But, <laughs> you know... So to me, like, and this has always been my approach with parenting, and in some ways it goes back to marketing. I see it as my job to be there close by while they're going through that stuff so they can bring it to me and process it you know, that they're going to experience it. Whether you tell them, hey, avoid this or not, it's going to get in there. And what I want them to do with me is say, hey, this just happened. What's going on? Or how do I, you know, deal with this? What does it look like? And that, that seems to me like instead of being the warner, the guy, you know, the person that keeping them away, gatekeeping, is to help them process what it means. Yeah, but sometimes uh, you're not there, you know. Like the processing... It has to, like, what level of bubbling up does it have to get to? And a lot of this stuff, the truth is, is that these relationships are so visceral, and they become so real for people, and they mean, they attach meaning to it, sure. right? And people do that themselves until they learn how to hit the world with indifference. But, you know, people project meaning on stuff. You see it with dogs all the time. And, I mean, I'm not, people, will, I'm just not a dog. I mean, I love my dog. Right. I have a beautiful Pe yes. golden retriever. People but project. I don't project human emotion on dogs. So here's the thing. That's why I said it's kind of like marketing. What people really hire us for in a lot of ways is to keep them from making mistakes. Because marketing mistakes are costly. Like if you're driving your company or your product on a certain persuasion rail, like you think this is persuasive and it's really going to work for you in the market and you build your messaging around it and it invades almost everything that you've got that's reaching out towards the customers and it's wrong, that's a huge hit. Yeah, but you know what seems right is like, I mean, what, what ends up being wrong is like often the, the most obvious stuff. Like we just ran a test for a client where we were testing two archetypes, right? Like one was like fast and easy, like just transposing that onto the rail conversation. Is it, e is it better to advertise the rail as easy 
or is it better to advertise the rail as fast, right? And there's ways you can test that messaging before you commit, but typically you only have one persuasive isotope to put out into the world. You can either become the fastest way to do it, or you can become the easiest way to do it, but you don't have enough money to advertise both. Right. Right? And if you pick the wrong one, then all that money basically goes to waste. Yeah, and when we constantly, constantly, (laughs) constantly, we put these things into tests, and we put them out there, and you put everybody in the room who came up with these genius little isotopes, right? And then they make them guess. Hey, which one is it? And everybody everybody votes, and that's the answer. I'm like, that's the worst. Like, to use democratic processes to make final choices in business and creative and all that is terrible. Because the audience is going to tell you what works. That's right. And they're the only ones who can tell you what works. I know this from stand-up, where I'll write an eight-minute stand-up bit, and I'm like, this is genius all the way through. And then you go up and do it, and they laugh at about, you know, 30 seconds of it. And so what you do in stand-up, you constantly get signal, very direct, visceral, undeniable signal from audiences. And they're like, oh, the, the explosive laughter on these six jokes. Everything else has to die. Then you take those six and you add around that until the entire thing gets explosive reactions all the way through. And that's why stand-up gets so good. Because yeah. there's no separation between you and the audience as you're developing the product. In business... That is never an opportunity where you constantly test every tiny iteration of your product with a direct, real, visceral audience. Right. So you're always guessing. And one of the things that we do a lot, and this is your part of it, this is what you have completely added to my sort of general theoretical expertise coming from a PhD in persuasion background, which thinks it knows everything, (laughs) you know, well, let's go test this and put it into a technology that tests it fast with an actual audience. And I don't care how expert you are, the data wins. Every time. Every time. You can't out-argue data. Yeah, and it's always counterintuitive. It doesn't matter how simple it is. It it just wins. And we're going to find out, wrapping back around to the naming thing that we've talked about in this episode, we've created a name for a company that has had... How long have they been in existence? Who? Um, oh, the the, co- yeah. the client. Yeah, they were five years. Okay, so they've been successful. They had for a five horrible. Years. They had a horrible name. That's truth. But they admitted it. They they said they, they it, but they, they they've, knew it. they've functioned as a company for five years with a horrible name. They're all still. They're in existence. They're all making money. They seem to be doing fairly well. And just for the record, they're actually my favorite clients. Oh, I love these guys. Yeah, they're just the coolest guys ever. So the question is, like, what can a great name do for them? What have they lost over the last five years from that name? Like, and what, when we create this new name, what is it going to deliver for real? You know, it's not costing them that much money. We don't charge that much. Like, five grand to do a six-week naming process is pretty low. And, and the question, though, is that going to return? What is it going to return? Yeah. Like, not only what did they lose in waiting six weeks... And plus the actual cost of going through it and then setting up the new name. We, you know, we created spider ads, right? We talked about that on the last podcast. That's a naming test that we're putting out there. Yep. See whether or not. I think you and I are willing to burn it down if it doesn't work. But yeah. the, I, my number one thing, you mentioned it earlier, and I, I don't know if we should wrap on this or not, but I, I, I am No, super, we have to do my comedy minute. You get your we're match gonna, we're gonna, yeah, get right, my comedy minute. We're going to do that. But I 
am super sensitive. I have no memory. I think that's what people realize, or <laughs> you know, I don't know if they know this about me, but they should. You like I, Memento, like that movie where he had no shirt. Honestly, I tell people this, and I say it slightly in jest, but it's kind of true. I feel like the smartest person in the world because every time I see something, I have to figure it out again. And I'm talking about basic things like table and chairs <laughs> and doors and doorknobs. I have to constantly use brain power to figure out how that thing works again. So you, you're in a constant state of fascination. Yeah, it's just marvel. Oh, my God. This, this does I work. actually think that about people who don't know how things work. Like my sister. My sister's horrible. She doesn't she didn't know how a clock works. There's this giant clock on the wall, and she's like, yeah, I don't know how that works. It's like, how can you walk around the world not curious right. as to how things work? It's like things must be magical for you. <laughs> Okay, you were going somewhere. You were driving that boat to some port. What was it? I have no idea. I don't know what it is. So the comedy moment, and you can come back to your point, is uh, I noticed this week, like I sometimes for my own entertainment, I sit around and write stand-up. I don't do that much stand-up anymore. I do one-person shows, and I still write for comics, but I just love it. And so one of the things I, I noticed this week was there was a streaker who ran out uh, into a Major League Baseball game, and it was a dude. And it just pointed out to me, like, the power of nudity. Um, but for it's different for the genders. Like, I was, at a high, I was at a college football game when I was in high school between Notre Dame and Miami. And this is back when, like, Jim Kelly was playing at Miami. They were huge. 100,000 people at Notre Dame Stadium. Everybody locked under the game. This blonde in the middle of everything, big beach, bleach blonde, bleached hair blonde, uh, stood up and pulled off her sweater, like completely topless. The entire stadium stopped. And I mean, like literally the players, the referees, everybody turned around for the 25, 30 seconds that she decided to take everybody's attention. 100,000 people. She stopped a major football game. That's the power of female nudity. When a guy runs out naked onto the field, the security tackles him. Like, they literally beat him up, carry him off, cover him up. If a woman, if she had run out onto the field, they'd have stopped the game for 15 minutes. People have been tackling the security. Like, leave her alone. She's expressing, you know, her individuality. <laughs> it's art. It's art. <laughs> it had been the greatest, you know, football game in everybody's memory forever. Right. It's like you just think the power of, you know, nudity like that. And it's like, wow. It's, how do you beat that just in the moment? So. Can't. It's a direct line to your soul. So if I were doing stand-up, I'd say, okay, so at this point, what we need is for a woman in here to, to get naked. Or literally everybody to get naked. Like, if you're thinking about, like, there's 100 people in a comedy club, everybody suddenly got naked, it would make international news. It would. Like, literally, everybody in here could just take off their clothes, and it would get onto the AP wires. Nothing different, just everybody naked. Either that would get really creepy really <laughs> fast. It became a, yeah, a strip club. I always thought like strip clubs, everybody should have to be naked. Totally different experience. Totally different. You'd be like, oh, look at her, man. Like, ooh, look at her, you. Oh, my God. It's a good example of, of product market fit. You don't see a lot of uh, strip clubs at the nudist facilities. Yeah, it would probably be a clothing club, right? Would it's it? Like, <laughs> get up there and put clothes on. That's so exciting. Look at the way she dresses. Oh, man, she has style. Anyway, nudity. That's the topic this week on the Comedy Minute.
So, Matt, wrap it up on naming um, and the week of 500. What, what can we look forward to next week? Um, what what we got coming up? Yeah, so next week is the week number one, actually, where I'm going to be interviewing my father. Uh, super excited about that. Rusty Bruchet was the founder of Very Light Shoko. He was the sound man for Led Zeppelin. Uh, he toured with uh, Genesis and Phil Collins and James Taylor. He was sound man for James Taylor for quite a long time. Uh, people in his company did Three Dog Night, uh, did, you know... Just, everybody, right? Yeah, the it's Stones, like everybody. Did it's one everybody. of his partners do The Stones. Yeah, it's everybody. It's crazy. Like, yeah. it's an amazing story. The list is shorter of company, of, of big bands they didn't do. Right. Actually, right? There's some, like, uh, Bruce Springsteen, I think, who had his own or used a, a random company or something like that, right? But other, yeah, so he was in this thing. And on top of being in the touring industry and being kind of a heavyweight, they invented products. They invented probably 35 to 50 products. A, a significant number of those you've seen probably in the last 72 hours uh, on television or on stage. They use them all the time. Uh, they are starting to evolve around, but they had some of the most significant developments in those industries. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how you develop products, how you think about products. What is the story about what are these things that kind of created it from his own personal journey uh, he considered himself the CEO. Uh, really, in today's terms, he would really be considered a product manager, somebody who creates products, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. He's such a fascinating guy. He's got such a, you know, depth of experience with this stuff. And it's not just it's not just light stories about oh, then they did this. Like he will explain to you like what happened that he used to develop, you know, the biggest you know speaker ever. And like it's just incredible that. There are people there that had to make all those things that became popular. They had to make them real. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that idea, that level of product development and that level of understanding the business, you just don't get access to those guys very much. And it's, it's great to listen to these interviews. Yeah. Well, I, I'm excited to uh, share that with the world and share a little bit of the family, family tree, <laughs> you know. Well, and that's why we call it the mix, because you never know exactly what you're going to learn, but you're always going to learn something interesting, and that's our promise. So uh, this is episode three. Uh, we talked about naming. Really appreciate it. We will be back in two weeks after we release the first Randy Bruche. Rusty. Rusty. Randy. Who's Randy? Whatever. I got it close. <laughs> uh, this is not my. This is not my day gig doing uh, podcast DJing. Got it. So Rusty Bruche, come back. We'll be back in two weeks. We are the mix with Matt and Dan. <laughs>